And Father, thank you that we can come to you in prayer. Thank you. We, we're going through all these um, prayers in the Bible and, and learning about communing with you and what a gift it is that we have access to you through Christ, that Christ stands and intercedes for us, has made us righteous, so we can come and talk with you. Lord, help us to, and I guess not take it for granted, to, to ask you for, for what we need. Lord, and, and I'm, I'm lifting up these people, Karen, that she would be saved, that you would glorify yourself in Karen's salvation, and also um, uh, Chris's neighbor, who recently lost her husband. Lord, that you would, you would be their salvation. And Father, as I think about it, also Payam, who's, who's traveling now, Lord, help that brother to grow in you and, and, um, and get a good job and, and get settled now. Um, Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to, to honor you and, and help me, Lord, to, to be, um, and I guess, to speak from your word appropriately, Lord, and um, to be filled with your spirit. Lord, please fill me with your spirit so that I might be of use to my brothers and sisters. If you do not work, it is for nothing. Father, and so please work through me and enable my brothers and sisters too to be attentive and to be good Bereans with the word. Um, amen. Okay, so we're studying Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. And um, I'm going to read this 5 through 13, essentially, give some context to the Lord's Prayer. Okay, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. You follow with me? I'm reading from the ESV. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father who knows what you need, your, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we see in the context here, Jesus is saying, first off, don't pray. And then he says, pray like this. So the Lord's Prayer is in context on how not to pray. And then gives us the example on, on how to pray. First, don't pray like, number one, the first example is the hypocrites. And number two, the Gentiles. The hypocrite is looking for the praise of man. He wants others to see him and think, wow, this man, he is so holy. What a perfect religious figure, right? He goes to the synagogue, the area where, where people met to, to worship and read the scriptures, and he wants to pray out loud and, and everyone see how great he is. Right? And Jesus calls this man out. He says that such a prayer means nothing before God. The only reward the hypocrite gets is other people's praise. Jesus says that God does not reward him. So that's number one. Number two is the Gentile. What's wrong with the Gentile's prayer? There's a few things, surely. For starters, the Gentiles do not believe in Yahweh. They don't believe in the true God. 
They'd be following, probably in this context, some pagan deity, Roman deity. But Jesus is not necessarily pointing that out so much as their lack of sincerity. To the Gentile, it doesn't matter so much what you're saying so long as you are going through the motions, going through the act of praying. So he's saying, heaping up empty phrases. What they say is, is empty. So we see the, the issue with both these examples of bad prayer is a lack of sincerity. Not focusing on God, but on men, and not meaning what is said. And I'll be, I'll be transparent with you. That strikes home for me, right? There are times I come to service on Sunday, especially in the morning, and, and I'll be tired, or my mind will be wandering. And ultimately, what am I doing? But I'm acting like the Gentile, right? My mind isn't really focused on God. I'm not being sincere in my prayer, really meaning what I'm saying to God. I'm, I'm just bowing my head and, and going through the motions. And actually, this, this is something we commonly pray against in the, in the men's prayer time at the beginning of, of Sunday service. We ask God to, to help us to be sincere, to be genuine in our worship, that we'd pray and mean it, and we'd mean when we sing praises to God and when we give and when we exhort each other. And, um, so this, this is the mindset that, that is missing in, in the examples of bad prayer. It strikes home for me, and I, I want to go through what Jesus' um, response is to a lack of sincerity in prayer. He responds with what we call the Lord's Prayer. So I broke our study up into five sections. It goes just each verse. We have six, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. That's five verses. And in each one of those, I want to point out the intentions that are assumed by what we are praying and, and how we live that out, how we are sincere in our, in our prayer. So to start off, we have verse 9, which is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus' emphasis is on treating God's name with reverence. Now, hallowed isn't necessarily a common word. Maybe for many of you it is, but it's not, not commonplace English today. Um, but what it means is, is to honor something as holy. So when we say, hallowed be your name, we are saying, Father, may your name be honored as holy. Right? So this is, this is to point out God's holiness. Along with this, actually, the phrase Father in heaven is, is known in, in Jewish terminology of being used to reverentially abstain from saying God's name. Instead of saying Yahweh, they would say Father in heaven. This is because the name of God is treated as holy. It's like we, we don't want to use it as common. So instead of saying it so often, we'll say it in its place We'll say, Father in heaven. So with both these phrases, Jesus says, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The the emphasis on both of these is treat God with reverence. So when we come to God, when we go to pray, we should approach our creator and acknowledge and honor his holiness. See, that's, that's such a different perspective than the hypocrite or the Gentile who comes really not thinking about the creator, thinking about the praise of man or about well, really nothing, just going through the motions, right? Now, if we're going to approach God with sincerity and, and seek to honor him as holy, we really need to know what it means that God is holy. And this is something, actually, I've learned in my time in New Hope, the, the actual meaning of holiness. I, was, I didn't know this before coming here, actually. But if you look up a definition of holiness, you'll see that the emphasis is on 
being separate, not like common things, that God is unique in a different category completely. So I've, I've written out some scriptures that, that basically define God as holy. We, there's a lot of these in Isaiah, right? So if we go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, you read, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Says the Holy One. Right? Can you compare God with anyone? No. No one is like God. That is why he is holy. He is separate from others. Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7, we read, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Is there anyone else like God? I am the Lord and there is no other. 1 Timothy chapter 6, 15 and 16 says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He is the only sovereign. He alone has immortality, and he dwells in inapproachable light. Doesn't that define God as being separate? If, if you cannot even approach him, the light he dwells in is, is unapproachable. Right? So there is no one like our God. No one else can hold such an office as to be compared with him. And so if this is our Holy Father in heaven, how, how do the scriptures describe our response to our holy God? 1 Peter 1, 14-20 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him, Call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we see God's holiness should inspire holiness in our lives. When we come to God with holy conduct, we come with conduct that is separate from the world, a world which is separate from God, a world which does not honor God. We should come trembling before him, knowing the wrath that he spared us at the great cost of Jesus' sacrifice. How different, how holy, how unlike anything else is our relationship with God through Jesus. What other relationship in your life was bought with the precious blood of Christ? Our relationship with God through Jesus is holy. So when we come to him, when we come to pray, we should express our reverence towards God. We should, we should show that we acknowledge that he is holy. Okay, moving on, verse 10. It says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, quickly, I wonder, when I read this verse, the first thing that comes to mind for me is... The second coming, Jesus coming again, right? I imagine that he comes to judge the living and the dead, that he takes away sin and death from our existence, that he will be with us forever 
He will rule in a new heaven and a new earth forever. That, that is the, the hope in, in my heart. That's what I see when I see your kingdom come. And this, this interpretation is, is supported as far as the commentaries that I've read studying for this, this sermon. Um, but there is another, another way of looking at it, which I think is equally valid. I just I want to have both in mind. And this is, I think, more directly related to Jesus' ministry on earth. And that would be the context of the gospel going forth into the world, especially to the Jews. Um, Matthew Henry puts this in his commentary on Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Let thy kingdom come. Let the gospel be preached to all and embraced by all. Let it be brought to, subscribed to the record God has given in his word concerning his son, and to embrace him as their savior and sovereign. So people coming to faith in Jesus. And actually a little later in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Matthew 10, 5 through 8, it says, Then Jesus sent the twelve out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So we see the kingdom of heaven. There's the one side which I think we can, we can totally, as Christians today, bank on, which is Jesus coming back, coming to us. And then also the gospel going forward into the earth. This is the kingdom of God on earth. Right? And man, what a privilege that is when you think about it. You get to go and share Christ with the people in your life. And what does that mean? That God's kingdom is moving forward in this world of darkness is a privilege. He's called us to this ministry that we get to go and share Christ with others. And, um, and just seeing in that context, thinking of it as a kingdom call, that we are a part of God's kingdom, and through us God is advancing in the world. This is I, I don't know how else to put it. It is a privilege. Um, so if we are instructed to pray for God's kingdom, then clearly our desire is to, is to, is to see God's kingdom. It's to see his will done. So as a believer, this is already true about you to some extent. This is, this is for sure by the scriptures. Romans 8, 18 through 23 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You skip down a little bit and it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we are groaning inwardly, eagerly awaiting for Jesus' coming, for the world to be made new. And in John 14, verse 21, says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So desiring God's kingdom and, and loving God's law, desiring his will, these things are, are definitely true about you as a Christian. But we are also called to grow in our desire for God's kingdom, grow in, in our desire for his will. Like Ephesians 5.17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord, will of the Lord is. 
Or in 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12, it says, Since all these things are thus to be resolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What sort of people ought you to be? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Then in verse 18, it says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is, it is the heartbeat of the Christian life, one that we do desire God's kingdom and his will, but also that we are growing in our desire for God's kingdom and his will. And if that's the heartbeat of the Christian life, this, this is a thought that struck me uh, preparing for this was, if that's true about every Christian, then think about the opportunity you have in church with all these believers that you know and trust and have worshipped with for a long time. Why don't you go and ask them, what has grown your desire for the kingdom of God? What has helped you understand the will of, of God in your life? Th- these are such worthwhile questions. And having this thought, I went and I decided I was going to go ask some people, okay, I'm going to ask people, what is, what is it that has grown your desire for the kingdom of God in your life? And I found it to be a very wholesome and, and encouraging conversation. So I guess my my um, exhortation there is let's not make that a rare event. Let's ask each other, how are you growing in, in your knowledge of God's will and what, what helps you desire God's kingdom? Make the things of earth grow dim and, and his kingdom be bright in your mind. I will share in that, in that spirit, I'll share one thing with you that has done that for me. It's maybe oh, like four or five years ago in my life, I decided I was going to start praying consistently for Jesus' return basically exactly what is in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I said to myself, I'm going to pray this in my life because it's a biblical thing to pray for. And I, I didn't exactly expect it, but my desire for Jesus, my love for him grew so much through that process. Every day going to God and asking for Jesus to come back just made it much more real to me. Made me um, desire to, to see him face to face in a way that I, I hadn't before and I did on a different level, I guess. And this, this is a biblical thing. This is all over the New Testament. I have, I have a list of verses here. Um, let's see, one, two, three, six or seven different books each have this either exhortation or, or explaining the desire in Christians to see Jesus again, not to mention the, um, the last few words of the New Testament, which is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So when we pray, we should express our desire for his kingdom. Um, And and I just, I want to leave you with that thought. To go, maybe ask like two or three people in the next week or so, what is it that that makes you desire the kingdom of God more? Okay, verse 11, Matthew 6, 11. Give us this day our daily bread. So we are told in this verse to ask God to meet our basic needs. Asking God for our basic needs means a couple things. One, that we trust him and realize that he alone is the provider of these good things. Or he's, he's a person we should go to. I guess God could be the provider, but if he wasn't the sole provider or the, or the top person you go to in your life, you can go other places. And I guess that is, in a sense, what we call idolatry. That we look to other things to fulfill our needs instead of, instead of God. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. 
I think uh, R.C. Sproul said it well in his book. He has a book called The Prayer of, Our, of the Lord. I, I didn't steal the whole sermon from his book, I, I promise. But actually, I haven't read the book, but I, I did find this, this clip from it. And it's about the, the petition, Give us this day our daily bread. He says, This petition of the Lord's Prayer then teaches us to come to God in a spirit of humble dependence, asking him to provide what we need to sustain us from day to day. Uh, as kind of an example of this, like I remember um, moving out of my parents' house, and um, and in doing that, my appreciation for them grew. I, I realized many of the things they that they had been doing for me that I was taking for granted. Right. By the way, they're here today. You should you should say hi to them before before they leave. Uh, not to put you on the spot, but yeah. But um. So, so no, I, I grew, I grew my, my appreciation for them, seeing that they had always provided for me in a consistent way that in going through college, I saw a lot of my, my fellow classmates that they didn't have that. They didn't have a, uh, a, a home that they can go back to and, and find emotional support. And, and like when it's an instinct in me when I need something or I need to figure something out or when I need emotional support, I can go, I just, I call my mom or my dad, right? And I can, I can get that from them. I know that I'll get that if I call, call home. And I, I just want to say that to, to get you thinking how much more the Lord has done that for me, that I would have that instinct more for my Father in heaven than I would my earthly father. The Lord in heaven, he's the one that holds the whole world together. He grants me every breath, every heartbeat, Right? We think about that. We maybe say that maybe too often. It becomes kind of flippant. But God is sustaining me every minute. It says Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Right? Without God, I, I am nothing. I, I vanish. Right? And so most of all, we say this, God is sustaining me, but God has also provided me with salvation. That's something my parents couldn't do. My mom or dad, they loved me, but they could not go to the cross and pay the punishment for my sins. So how much more has the Lord done for me than, than anyone else? We see in 1 John 4, 9 through 10, And this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Praise God for our provision of salvation. Surely God is the one who provides all we need so we can submit our needs to him. And as studying, studying for this the sermon, I, I, I wanted to say this, I wanted to draw out that God is the one that provides for us, but in a way it's less tangible than the way I, I would depend on my mom or my dad. I can call them immediately, but my, my dad can move my bed when I'm moving. And this, is, this is a very physical thing. I see this. Um, but what does it mean when we submit our needs to God? And this becomes, I think, a lot less concrete. And I often feel like I've said this and not really known what I was, what I was saying. Just, I knew it was a good thing to do. It was a good Christian thing to say, well, I'm going to give it up to the Lord. And so I, I meditated on that a while. I found some scriptures, I think, that help us bring that back down to earth to application in our lives. Um, so number one, 
James 4, 13 through 16, says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, what, what does it look like to submit our needs to God? Well, one, it looks like we don't boast, right? And when we boast, we, we replace our submission to God with our, our dependence on ourselves, saying, look at what I have accomplished, not what God has been so gracious to do for me in his will. Right? So when we, when we see our pride, when we see our, our boasting or thinking that we, we can handle these things and it doesn't really, um, it doesn't really relate to God, this is... This is evil, and this is um, not relying, not submitting our needs to him. So number one is do not boast. Number two, be thankful for everything. Uh, the verse I have for this is 1 Thessalonians five sixteen through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. When we express gratitude, even in the hard times, it is a great witness to the world of how we trust our God. If, if we were just relying on ourselves, just saw the earth, then when things go wrong, we don't see a path forward, then there is no hope for us. Right? But since we believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving towards us God, we don't have that problem. We can give thanks in all circumstances. And this shows, this expresses our submitting our needs to God instead of relying on ourselves. And number three I see is choosing obedience over earthly gain. When we choose obedience over earthly gain, we show that we submit our needs to God. We don't take matters into our own hands. There is a believer I know recently, I was I was told I cannot give the name so that all glory would go to God. But there's a believer I know recently who was offered a very promising and due to their situation a rather necessary career advancement, but it also meant having to tell a pretty big lie. Disregarding the apparent earthly gain, this believer turned down the opportunity and trusted God to provide. And so when I hear this story, when I heard it, I, I was filled with joy. It was a great encouragement to me, and I know that, that God will provide for his child. Um, what, what that looks like, we don't know, but what we need while we're on earth, while God keeps us here, he will supply to us. He supplies what he demands of us. It reminds me of the proverb, uh, Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. It is better to serve God than to, than to be rich in the world. So when we pray, Summary, I spent a long time on that verse, I guess. But when we pray, we should submit our needs to God. Great. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus teaches that we should come to God seeking forgiveness. Primarily, we seek forgiveness for the insurmountable debt we owe God because of our sin. If we do not plead with him for forgiveness, we have no part with him. But whoever asks for his forgiveness, trusting in his son's payment on the cross for his or her debts, will be forgiven. 
As it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Jesus makes clear in this verse that those who are truly forgiven by God also have in them a spirit of forgiveness. Lest we miss the point, Jesus reiterates the fact in verse 14. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay, that's an easy thing to read. I admit, it's a very difficult thing. I was thinking, how on earth can I preach this? There are people in my life that carry such unimaginable pain after being treated horribly by others. I, I think about people in my life I know that have been abused, and, and I, I guess I can't really go into details, but treated very harshly. And what can I look at them and say, well, you better have a forgiving spirit. You better forgive these people. Like, I'm, I'm so far out of my my realm of experience there. So can I say that? Yes, I can, because that is what the Word of God says. It's not about my experience. It's not about my, my understanding or my wisdom. It's about what God has said. And I cannot, in good conscience, diminish what my Lord has made strikingly clear in His Word. If you do not have a desire to forgive, you have no part with Christ. Does that command seem impossible? Is there someone in your life that you cannot see how it is possible you could forgive them? Then please pray and ask God to give you the strength to forgive. Like it says in Mark 10, 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So this verse is a warning. This was it, 14 especially is a warning. But I also want it to be an encouragement as well. Look at it this way. Do you know Jesus? If you know Jesus, then take heart. God will grant you the strength to forgive as you have been forgiven. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. I found a, what I thought is a very powerful story of Christian forgiveness. And there are many of these, right? But if Christians are enabled with such a spirit of forgiveness, then you would expect to find many stories like this. Um, my story, I found it on a blog called Reasonable Theology, and um, it's about a man named Louis Zamperini. His story begins as an unsaved man on a bomber crew for the U.S. Air Force in, during World War II. After surviving a plane crash and spending over a month adrift in the Pacific Ocean, he was picked up by Japanese forces to be a prisoner of war. There he faced absolute brutality and incessant abuse at the hands of Japanese soldiers. Providentially, Louis did survive the POW camp and made it home, but his time at the camp had filled Louis with anxiety and hatred for his captors. He tried to find solace in alcohol, as well as, it says, making plans to go back to Japan and murder the war criminals that, who had tormented him. But God had bigger plans for Louis. In 1949, Louis was added to the faith when he gave his life to Christ. His desire for vengeance left him completely. Louis forgave his former captors and actually met with many of them later, and many of them accepted Christ. He greeted them warmly and shared the gospel with them. One Japanese soldier asked him how it is possible for Louis to forgive these men who had treated him so badly. 
And this is Louis' response. The greatest story of forgiveness the world has ever known was the cross. When Christ was crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It is only through the cross that I can come back here and say this, but I do forgive you. What a testimony that is, right? Look at how our God took this man's tormented past for his glory and the salvation of many. He used it. Humanly speaking, Louis had no reason to forgive, but Louis was not motivated by an earthly reason. He was following his Savior in forgiveness. So truly, as Christians, we, when we come to God and pray, we should come in a spirit of forgiveness, both recognizing our great need for forgiveness through Christ and forgiving others. Okay, finally, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Certainly then our desire is to stay away from sinful things. Like we talked about earlier from verse 9, God's holiness inspires holiness in our lives. To keep God's name holy and to seek his kingdom, we lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and we run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, Hebrews 12.1. But that's just it, the sin that clings so closely. Sin is crouching at your door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That doorway at which sin waits is temptation. Do not be led through it, or you will be destroyed and defiled by the monster which is sin in your life. From James 1, 14 and 15, it says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives, brings forth death. So we should pray to God, Lead me not into temptation. For his glory and our best. Flee the things which tempt you to sin. Why flirt with disaster? What point is there in leaving the possibility for you to be destroyed? I have an analogy that I came up for this. And let's say you and your friend are at the shooting range. And you fire your last round down the range. And your slide locks back. Your, your pistol is empty. Let me ask you. Would you dare... Point that pistol at your friend. I hope you wouldn't. If you did, if you did point your pistol at your friend, I hope you get kicked out of the shooting range. Right? This, is, this is the rule. It's a good rule. Listen, if you have this temptation in hand and you point it at your spiritual walk, your walk with Christ, and you say, what's the problem? It's empty of sin. How reckless, how foolish that is for the Christian life. Instead of saying, why not? Can I get away with it? Ask yourself instead this question. How does it glorify God? Am I expressing my love for him while I'm entertaining this potential for sin? So take time to consider what are the common temptations in your life? How can you get rid of them? I have a few suggestions from my own experience. And one of these would be social media. I, I don't have social media now. I had Instagram for two years. And it was a breeding ground for lust and for ungratefulness in my life. And so especially to young men, I look at them and I say, do you really need social media? What is the benefit for you? And maybe some of you have good reasons. And maybe there's people you have no other way to keep up with. I don't know. I can't see into your life like that. But I do, I do suggest you take that to God in prayer. Like it says in 
Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? You know, the context for that verse is adultery. You have this phone in your pocket. It's one, a couple of flicks here, here and there, and there you have it. It's something you should not see. Are you, are you going to be burned? That's the question I have, especially towards young men. Another example I have of temptation that I've seen in my life is talking about people behind their back. Maybe it isn't always sinful. Maybe it's not always gossip. Maybe you think you're saying something very benign. But I'm saying be careful because I've seen how quickly passing judgment can go to pride and slander. And I've seen it do real damage to relationships in my life. Um, James 4, 11 and 12 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So overall, overall I guess my, my, my point is to be watchful. Temptation crops up in a variety of sneaky and unassuming ways. And the last thing I'd say is, um, when you are tempted, go confess to a brother or sister. I've been amazed at the healing and the help that has been in my life to lay aside my pride and confess my, my desire for sin. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay, that's, that's all five verses of the Lord's Prayer. And um, I... In summary, I want to go back through them very quickly and show that all these things Jesus tells us to pray for, we can find um, guaranteed to us by the Bible. And so just to give us, this is, a, this is a common thing, right? We go and we pray and we wonder, what will the answer be? Will God say yes? Will God answer how we want him to? Right? And, and, um, and we don't know the answer. We don't know the will of God perfectly. Um, but these things that Jesus asked for, we can have great confidence in when we pray for a couple of reasons. One is because Jesus, who was always in the will of God, told us to pray like this. And the other is because these promises are found in Scripture. So, verse 9, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Psalm 72, verse 11 says, All nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. I know that every single one of you in, in some context, in your own life, in your sin, in your workforce, in, in, in your family, you will see God's name not being treated as holy. But there will be a day in a new heaven and new earth when God's name is always honored. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Proverbs nineteen twenty one says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God's will will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Matthew, just later in the chapter, 6, um, verses 30 through 33. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God will provide for us. Um, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Acts 10, 43 says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. If you believe in Jesus, if you are his child, then your sins are forgiven. I, I just, I want to take time, especially, especially to the kiddos. You, you've probably sat through a lot of sermons on Wednesday nights, and, um, and you've probably lost a lot of focus at this point. But I'm asking you directly a question. I want you to think about it. And this, this is not just for the kids. This is for everyone. We, um, are you a Christian? Why or why not? What makes you a Christian? How do you know if you are going to heaven or not? Many of you probably think, I'm going to heaven because... I'm a Christian, and I went to church all my life. I, I go to church every Sunday or even Wednesday nights, twice a week, man, right? Or I've memorized a lot of Bible verses. Or I got baptized. These things maybe in your mind give you confidence that you're a Christian and that you're, you're God's child. But what I want to tell you, what I've told so many people so many times who think this way, that they're going to earn their way to heaven, is you will not earn your way to heaven it is not about how good you do in your life. It's not about how hard you work. What does the verse say? What does Acts 10.43 say? To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It is about believing in Jesus. It's not about how hard you work. I have an, I have an analogy for you. If, you. if you think real hard about this analogy. Let's say you wake up in the middle of the night and you smell smoke, the house you're in is on fire. So you run outside, and this is part of the analogy. This is kind of strange, I know, but in the analogy, you're outside your house burning down, and you have two things with you. You have a water gun, a little squirt gun, and you have a cell phone. Okay, you have these two things. What do you think you should do? Sitting outside your house, burning down, you have a squirt gun and a cell phone. I heard 911. I think that's a good choice. I think it's better than the squirt gun, right? So what are you going to do with the squirt gun? You're going to go try. You're going to have a little bit of water. It's, it's not going to do much. It's a whole house you have to put out, right? But the fire department, they have a big truck and a lot of stuff they can throw out this fire, right? If you're going to God with your work saying, I'm going to make it to heaven, it's like you're taking that squirt gun to the fire and trying to put it out. You're not going to get it out. But if you believe in Jesus, then you have everything you need to be forgiven for your sins. Jesus, in the analogy, is like that fire truck that can definitely put out the big fire. Yourself, anyone or anything you want to put your trust in other than Jesus, it won't, it won't be enough. But when Jesus says, I forgive you because of what I did on the cross, then you know that you are going to heaven. If you believe in Jesus... Call on him. Call 911. Ask to have the fire put out. And Jesus can do it. And the last, last verse is, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God's will is not our temptation, but instead our growth in Christ, our sanctification. These are powerful promises from his word. These are powerful things Jesus told us to pray about, and we have confidence that, that God will, will fulfill them in our life. So with that with the confidence, we can, we can go to him in prayer. Let's end with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus teaching us how to pray and how to come before you. And help us, Lord, to come to you in sincerity, that when we, when we approach you, we would see you as holy. We would honor your name. And that we would desire your kingdom and desire your will to be done in our lives. And that we would submit our needs to you and see that, that you are the one who truly provides all things for us. Father, we come to you knowing our sin, but knowing our greater Savior. Help us to, to look to Christ and, and have the joy and peace that you promise us through his name. And Lord, lead us not in temptation. Don't let us be drawn away by the cares of the world, but instead seek to honor you and, and live for you. Amen.